For some people, new is the most frightening thing in the world. We like things the way they've always been. We, we like consistency. And, and to think of things changing, to think of something new coming on the horizon is, is frightening. For other people, new is the most exhilarating thing in the world. The, to just keep things the same is boring and dull. And, and we're looking for something new all the time. Whichever, whichever one might describe you most of the time, all of us at some time like things to be new. There is something exciting about moving into a new house or driving home a new car or opening up the box to a new computer. There's something new about it, and we get a a rush of exhilaration in the midst of it. Now, that rush may only last for 30 minutes or maybe 30 days, but eventually, because eventually it goes away. The problem is not wanting things that are new. The problem is making those new things our idol. Thinking that they can satisfy the yearning that we have in our hearts. There is nothing wrong with new, despite the culture in which we live. You know, we're continually inundated with new. You go to the store, you, you watch commercials, it's new, better, uh, you know, more advanced uh, updated formula, and it doesn't matter what it is, you can find it in just about any product, tennis shoes or toothpaste or, you know, uh, breakfast cereal, take your pick, there's something new about it, and that ought to, you ought to buy that instead of the other, and again, it feeds into that idolization of new. But the yearning and the, and the interest in new is actually a part of being created in the image of God. Because God's enamored with new. Now, God, God establishes himself from of old, and he talks about how the old is important, and it's a part of who he is. But through the scriptures, God says, I'm doing something new. And when you come to Revelation, he actually makes the declaration, I am making all things new. Everything you think about me, everything you think about eternity, I'm making it new. And in this 21st chapter of Revelation, he talks about the new heaven and the new earth. There are a lot of things in the book of Revelation. You can read it a thousand times, and every time you read it, you're more confused than the time before. Right? I mean, what in the world does that mean? But there are some things about the book of Revelation that are clear. And one of them here in chapter 21 is that God is preparing this eternal life, this this new kingdom. And it will be a new heaven and a new earth. It will be new. And what exactly that means, we get a little bit of an idea as you go through this chapter. There is a sense of God creating, just the whole sense of creating new. Now, we know God loves to create. He is the creator. And and in the new heaven and the new earth, what he creates, I think, is going to blow our minds. You know, you try your best to figure out what that's going to be. We don't even get close. 
But we know God loves to create. Just look around at nature. Look at us. The variety of God's creation. God loves to create. He loves to create vastly and he loves to create uniquely. God loves to create. And one of the elements I'm convinced of the new heaven and the new earth is that the people of God's people will be people who in his image continue to create. The gift of creating things is, is simply doing what God does. It's what he's implant, one of the things he's implanted into us, to be people who create. Now, I used to think work was the result of the fall. Right? I mean, you know, work, it's tedious. And, the, the, you know, before, Adam, before sin into the world, Adam and Eve just lay around and do whatever they wanted, do nothing, right? And then you read it and it says, not that because you sinned, you now have to work, but because you sinned, your work is going to be burdensome. It's going to be unproductive. It's going to frustrate you. But the point of working is not the issue. Work is not one of the seven deadly sins, despite what some people might say. And there is joy in creating. You know, you know that the, the, whatever it is that you love to do, to write music or to paint pictures or to, to cook food or, or to, to write a book, whatever it may be, and as, as toilsome and, and as hard as it may be, there is this great joy that comes to us when we have completed it. And we look at it and see what we have created and we're filled with joy. That's God in us. And that's an eternal part of what it means to be God's children. And when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to continue to create. And it will be awesome. We'll be creating stuff all the time. And sometimes I wonder how in the, you know, we're going to run out of creating things. And then I think about all the things we create now in this limited world. I was going to look this up and I forgot. How many Probably millions and millions of songs have been written. And it seems like there's no end to them. And if we can create songs now in our limited understanding, just think what it's going to be like when we have full understanding. But it all, we also get a picture here of the newness of God's kingdom. Not just about creating, but also the sense of security in which we will exist. Verse 4 tells us that there will be no more tears, no sorrow, no pain. Very different from our lives now. Our lives are often defined by sorrow and tears and pain. We mark moments in our lives by tragedies that have happened, where we were when we heard the news. How, we, how our lives are different because this happened. On that day, that will all disappear. Evil will be completely gone. And there will be, and, and all the consequences of it as well. And a part of that, that new kingdom of, of being free from evil and its consequences will be a sense of eternal security. 
a sense like we have never experienced before of the security of being in God's presence. When you look at verse 25 at the end of this chapter, he said he didn't see a temple because the city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it its light and the lamb is its lamp. And it says, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Now you picture in your mind this, this you know, an ancient city with the wall surrounding it and a gate. During the day, the gate's open. People can come in and go out, movement all the time. But as night comes, the gate is closed and locked. Why do they do that? For protection, for security. It's at night when fear creeps into our minds. It's at night that evil seems to have the most sway over our world. Most crimes take place at night. And you know the sense of, of being in that, your house alone and night comes on you and you hear every noise. Inside, outside, you think, what was that? What did that? I never heard that noise before. And... and, and, and Fear begins to creep in. What's so fascinating to me in those moments is when you're, when you're overwhelmed by fear, all it takes is just the, the first light of dawn to begin to dissipate the fear. Something about light gives us hope and, and a sense of security. And John tells us that on that day, it will all be light. There'll be no more darkness the gates can stay wide open because there we have complete security. God is in control. You know, we're in the middle of Easter season. So in some places of the church, we celebrate Easter Day and then sort of put that on the shelf. But the church historic talks about 50 days of Easter where we celebrate this most monumental event of our Christian life. The resurrection of Christ. And in that resurrection, he conquers death and sin and all of its consequences. And ultimately, when we get to heaven, we will experience the fullness of that. But the reality is we can begin to experience that now. We can live in in power and in, in in the victorious grace and power of Christ who has conquered our enemies. And we will still have fear because we're human. And we'll still have anxiety and worry. And we, we still wrestle with all those things as human beings. But underlying all of it is a sense of security in Christ who has conquered. And whatever happens to us, whatever, however people may threaten us or, the, or circumstances may overwhelm us, underneath that is the victorious power of the risen Christ. And on that day, when the kingdom comes to its fulfillment, we will know the fullness of that. But even now, we begin to live in the reality of it. And all of this, all of this sense of security and and, and this this sense of 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 understanding the, the creative working nature takes place in the context of what John describes as the new Jerusalem. The holy city. It intrigues me that he, he says, it, when he, he saw the city coming out of the, out of the heavens, and it was dressed like a bride for the wedding. I don't know what a wedding dress around a city looks like. 
that might be something to, to you know, I'm thinking to myself, what would, what would John have seen that would have made him think of a city dressed for a wedding? Something about celebration. But what intrigues me about that imagery is that when you read through the scriptures, you find a, a clear connection between the bride at a wedding and God's people. In Isaiah 61, God talks about his people, Israel, as his bride. In Isaiah 62, same thing. He talks about his people dressed as a bride. We come to the New Testament. And in Revelation 19, it talks about the church as the bride of the Lamb. And Paul makes that connection so clearly in Ephesians chapter 5 that the church is the bride of Christ. And I read this passage, and he talks about uh, the people of God living in the holy city, and I think that's the church. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be about the church. I think that might be a new concept for some of us. Because we have a tendency to think the church is something we need on earth. When we get to heaven, we don't need that anymore. But John seems to indicate that the church is an eternal part of God's kingdom. That's how we'll be known. That's how we will live as the people of God together. And that should say something to us about how we view the church now. If it is a part of eternity, then it surely is super significant now. We don't always get that. I think our image of heaven doesn't always portray that. It's probably a little bit unfortunate that the King James translation of John 14.2 is, In my Father's house are many mansions. Most of the translations used, describe that as, In my Father's house are many rooms. But we get into our minds, if you've been around the King James Bible, we get into our minds that idea of mansions in heaven. And, and I think it sort of feels to us like the exclusive area of some place like the Hamptons. You know, where we're all going to have all these mansions with gates around them. And we come out every so often and worship Jesus and we go back in and do our thing. You know, we tend to learn a lot of theology through music. And that's not always bad, but it depends on what the music is, right? Uh, some of you who have been around a little while might remember, might know of the name of Dottie Rambo. She's written a lot of, I would say, southern gospel type music. And her most famous song is We Shall Behold Him. And that's a great song. And she's written a lot of good music. But like all people who write music, some of it not so good. And I remember singing as a, as a child one of the songs that she wrote. And I didn't think that much about it. The chorus says, just build my mansion next door to Jesus. Tell all the angels I'm coming home. It doesn't matter who lives around me just so my mansion sits near the throne. Well, I mean, I guess that's okay. But it seems to imply that it's just about me. It's just about me and Jesus. And everybody else is periphery to my eternal existence. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. Heaven, as someone said to me recently, is a social place. It's a place of, of integrating our lives. And what we do here is a precursor and a preparation for what we're going to do there. And we do it here because we will do it there. And if heaven is described as the church, as the, our, our, living our lives 
in heaven in the context of the church, then surely it means we live our lives now in the context of the church. I think one of the great oxymorons of the of a lot of, of evangelical faith is Christian independence. It might be one of the great heresies of the 21st century and of the evangelical church to think we can be Christians all by ourselves. And even more than that, that it's okay to just be a Christian all by myself. And it's not that I don't care about the church or want to be involved in the church, but it's sort of negotiable. If I have it, great. If I don't, that's okay. That's not the biblical image we find of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The church is integral to being a follower of Jesus. It is essential. It's vital. There would be some people who would say, you, aren't, you don't really understand what it means to be a Christian without the church. And the way most of us are raised, we question that. But I think that's a biblical view. And when we get to heaven, I think it's probably going to look a little bit more like a commune than individual little mansions all over the place. Or at the very least, there's some kind of boarding house where we're all connected to each other. Because we are connected to each other. It's about how we connect to each other there so that it inspires us about how we connect to each other here. And why is it that we struggle so much with the church and seeing it as negotiable? Well, besides the fact that that's sort of been ingrained into us, and we live in, I think a lot of it is just the fact that we live in a nation where independence is valued above most everything else. And that bleeds into the church. I also think it's probably because our lives are pretty easy. When you go to places of the world where Christians are persecuted, the most intense persecution seems to be when people come together as the church. In a lot of nations of the world, if you want to be a Christian by yourself, it may not be looked upon positively, but the persecution is minimal. But the persecution intensifies when people, when Christians begin to come together and meet together. And what fascinates me and shames me is that in those places where coming together means intensity of persecution, Christians keep doing it. They keep coming together because they have realized something that we have not. They, they simply cannot exist without each other. And it's worth even the risk of their lives sometimes to get together and to be together and to see their lives as one together. And I suspect our ease of life has allowed us to say, I can do this on my own. And we wonder why we fail so often. If this is the image that we have of heaven, then surely it is the priority of God's people on earth. 
And when John describes the new city, it's all about exact measurements. And he uses numbers that means perfection. And you get a sense that when, you get to, when we get to that day, the church will be perfect. We're not quite there yet now. And that's one of our struggles too. You know, the church is quite honestly difficult and it's inconvenient and it demands of us. In many ways, it's simpler. Just I'll just do it myself. I'm, I'm fine on my own. The minute we started integrating our lives with others, then what they do has a bearing on us. And we realize what we do has a bearing on them. And, and it becomes a whole thing. And we want to avoid things. But the truth of the matter is, it is that interaction with other people, the challenges of people in our lives, and realizing that our behavior and the decisions we make do have a bearing on other people, that it does bear on other people's lives, that causes us to see how much we need Christ. And often on our own, we can walk along merrily thinking we're great because there's no one to challenge us. There's no one to push us. We don't have to think outside of ourselves, but the church forces that on us. And what I find so fascinating is that it's in the context, in the crucible of the imperfect church, that spiritual growth takes place. Because we need Christ when we see how far we have to go. We're not talking about heaven on earth. It's one of the reasons we get so disappointed is that we sometimes expect heaven on earth. But what I am talking about is living on earth with the mindset of heaven. The things that are important in the heavenly image that John gives us become important as we live out our lives here. And the struggles and the ups and the downs and the burdens of trying to be followers of Christ on this earth, in this imperfect world, with imperfect people. The church is not a human idea, it's God's. And he is in the midst of his people and he is making all things new. And the question for us is as we think about our lives, what we do, what we think, how we see each other, how we see our lives in the midst of each other, is what we're doing reflecting what we see in heaven? Is it preparing us for that day when God will make all things new and it will blow our minds? What are we doing now? The way we think now, is it preparing us for that day? You know, in the great divorce, C.S. Lewis has this fascinating image of people in hell getting on a bus and taking a trip to heaven. And they're all offered the opportunity to stay in heaven. But none of them want to. 
Because heaven doesn't offer anything they want. They have lived their lives, made the priority of their lives what they want instead of what God wants. So what are our lives saying about eternity? Is eternity reflected in the decisions we make and how we live and what we do now as citizens of his holy kingdom? I'd like for us to take a moment to meditation and silence to ponder our lives and our priorities and and to ask God to speak into our hearts about whether we are reflecting his new heaven and new earth his new kingdom Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing promises you make to us. For the mind-boggling preparations you are making for your children. We want to live in such a way that we prepare ourselves and we embrace your priorities for your eternal kingdom. Fill us with the spirit of the new heaven and the new earth even now. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.